when it was clear that the coronavirus had broken out in our area and across our country, there was a lot of sermons on Psalm 91. So, you know me, I don't like to be like everybody else, so I didn't do a sermon on Psalm 91 or 46, which I might do next week, who knows. So, tonight we're going to do Psalm 91, and the title of the message is Safe in God's Love, Safe in God's Love. Now, I don't want to knock my pastoral compadres. It's very easy to understand why they preached from Psalm 91, uh, because verse 3 and verse 6 says that the Lord will deliver his people from perilous pestilence. In other words, that God would deliver them from an epidemic. Verse 10, God says, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. So, it seems apropos that people would say that, but we have to be careful what we say about Psalm 91. The psalmist is in a situation where he has experienced great danger around him, and then he's going to tell us how he experienced safety. Not necessarily how things always get better, but how to think and how to act in the midst of great danger. Uh, on the other hand, when you think of, okay, we have danger over here, it is very encouraging, this psalm, because it is both joyous and comforting for times of sickness, for times of loneliness, for times of trouble, for times of anxiety, for times of worry. Let me ask you a question before you start. How many of you are worrying right now? Just, just raise your hand. Of course, no one like under 22 is really worrying too much. They're like, I have no worries. Don't worry, they'll come. You get the older you get, the more you have to, the more you have to worry about. And maybe some of you are saying, okay, I get that you didn't want to do Psalm 91. What have you been waiting for? This is really it. I don't want to twist the meaning of the psalm. And it is a very tempting psalm to twist the meaning of and to say God made promises that he actually didn't make. In fact, this psalm is probably the most famous twisted psalm in the entirety of the Bible. Now you're saying, are we that bad? Nope, as actually twisted by the world's most famous scripture twister, and his name is Satan. He actually preached part of this psalm to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, misapplying it and tempting Jesus by promising Jesus something that God did not say. How did he do it? This is how he did it. He quoted Psalm 91 to Jesus as if it promised unconditional protection in any and every circumstances for God's people. Let's just say that again because it's really important that we understand that. Satan did it. He tempted Jesus by quoting part of Psalm 91 as if it promised unconditional protection in any and every circumstance for those who love God. So who wrote Psalm 91? Uh, we don't know, although many of the rabbis said back in the day that it was Moses who wrote it. And that Moses wrote it after the famous plague, if you know the Old Testament at all, of Numbers 21, which there was a plague of snakes. Now, I don't know for sure if he did write it or not, but I do know this, that that plague helped God's people move from complaining to faith. And I think we'll all agree that is a very good thing and a great lesson for all of us. I would think that what happened when the plague of snakes came and why God's promises were so important is that in the wilderness, I'm sure... Okay, you get over a plague of snakes. What are you afraid of after that? You're afraid of what we now know as a second wave. 
You're afraid you're going to go some other place and as you're marching your way across the wilderness and maybe some more snakes are going to pop up. And they were also afraid of other dangers that could pop up. Once again, we don't know who wrote Psalm 91. And as we've been saying before, sometimes not knowing the author makes it much more accessible to us because we think, ah, that was those people. It certainly doesn't apply to us. But again, replacing complaining about God. Remember we said Habakkuk, he complained to God. That's a different thing. But they were complaining about Moses. They were complaining about God. And change, turning it into, replacing it with confidence in him where we find great help. So if you're taking notes, three things you want to outline tonight. Number one, the psalmist's faith. The psalmist's faith. And so he seems to look backwards, remembering a time when he was in great difficulty. So Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the secret place, uh, some versions say in the shelter, some say in the protection of the Most High. What, what is the Most High? God is all-powerful. Shall abide or rest under the shadow of the Almighty. Now, you're like, well, what is the shadow of the Almighty? Who cares about that? Well, you know what it's like when you're out on a blistering hot day and you go under a shade tree. Well, for them, the, a shadow or shade could actually, when you're desert, desert people, it could actually save you from dying. So it would cool off your body. You wouldn't burn up because the hot sun just completely exposed to it all day could actually kill you. Verse 2, I will say to the Lord, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. So here the psalmist is telling us how he experienced the Lord's protection. And one thing we have to realize is that sometimes the experience of God in the midst of our difficulties is not to be confused with God fixing it. That's one of the things as Americans I fear we want too much. We want God to fix all of our problems. Loved ones, God wants to use our problems to make us more like him, to specifically to make us more like Jesus. And so how did he experience the Lord's protection in the midst of great danger that he appears to be in by staying close to him, he tells us? You know, under the shadow of his wing, of, his, of, of the Almighty, and trusting him. So in other words, it's quite possible the psalmist is telling us that by doing what he says in verse 1, abiding in God or resting in God, staying close to God, is actually how we experience verse 2, the experience of refuge in God. Now, this is not blind faith. The, the Bible never asks you and I to just have blind faith. We are to trust God. We have to trust what we know about God. But some people just go, well, I just believe, and that's it. No, no, no. His trust is based in who is his refuge and who is his fortress. And who does he describe him as? The Most High, the Almighty, the Lord, and God. So for the psalmist... For many of the Bible writers, and hopefully for us as we're growing in our faith, the names of God, and name in the Bible is not just who you call someone, it has to do with the nature of who you are, of, of your character, of what you're all about. For the psalmist, the names of God help him have confidence in the Lord's ability to protect him. So again, here we are right now in our country in a difficult time. And so who should we be calling upon the name of? The Most High, the Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Yet notice here it's also intensely personal. We had the big names of God. But here we also see some smaller things that make it more personal. He says he is my refuge. He is my fortress. 
in him, I, personal, personal relationship with God, in him, I will trust. Now, here's the logical question. Is your faith, is my faith, that personal? It's almost like I just want to stop the message here and just say, okay, let's close our Bibles, let's all go to our prayer rooms or let's go to our rooms or sit down somewhere in a quiet place. Maybe if this was a retreat, we'd go off by the lake or something like that or by the river or out in the woods and really just think about that. Is our relationship with God that personal or are we trying to make it that personal? Why? Because the promise of shelter and shadow, of refuge and fortress, is experienced by those who dwell in God and trust in him. Now, there's an old expression, we don't use it anymore, but people would say, like, you know, where do you dwell? Really, where do you live? So essentially, God is saying, you will experience my shelter and shadow, my refuge and fortress, when I become your home. We talk about when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. God makes his home inside of us. And we put our trust continually in him. So so what does all this mean? This means that in order to experience these things about God, in order to experience the peace of God, we must not only believe. You ever talk to anybody and like, I believe, I believe, I believe. There has to be more than that. We also, if we're going to experience this, have to live close to God. We want to stay close to God. Well, that's number one. That was his faith. That, that's, how, that's really how in the midst of difficulty he was able to be more peaceful. By the way, we all know this. In difficulty, the calmer you are, usually, some of us do better with a little bit of adrenaline, but usually our heads are a lot cooler and we're able to make better decisions. Well, number two, the people's faith. The people's faith. This is really cool what's going to happen next. It's like we're going to get a personal mentor from a Bible writer. He, he's, going to, he's going to actually mentor us in our own faith. The people say, we the people. He's going to, we're going to mentor us in our own faith so we can experience God the way he does. He says, verse 3, Surely he, God, shall deliver you. Interesting. Singular. A lot of times the you in the Bible is plural, you guys, you, know, you people. But it, it is, I can say that I'm from New York. So, but, but here it's singular, it's you personally. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. You're like, what in the world is that? Some of your versions say from the hunter's net, uh, could be from evil people. And from perilous pestilence. Other versions say deadly pestilence, others say destructive plague. We might say sickness. For us in our world, we might just say sickness, although things are a little different right now. Some people think it actually means slander. I don't know. Verse 4, he shall cover you with his feathers. Now, that's a very interesting picture of God, isn't it? You're like, oh, does God have feathers? No, no, no. This is a farming community. Farming people, the agricultural people, they, they would have to understand these things. They, they had animals with them, even if it was Moses and the people in the wilderness. And under his wings, you shall take refuge, or you shall find refuge. Let's stop there for a second. What, what is this? God's feathers and his wings take refuge? Well, uh, quite a number of you know this. Others of you don't, but you will in a second that I grew up from horse, uh, across the street from horse stables. And they also had a chicken coop. And they also had all other kinds of animals. And it would very, be very interesting. They, also, they always had problems with raccoons, and we don't know what other kind of animals there. But it would be very interesting when one of the neighbor's dogs, we didn't, people didn't really keep their dogs on leashes over there, and so neither did they keep their horses. Sometimes we'd wake up and they'd be on our front lawn. But, so, but anyway, when you see a dog would come near 
the animals in, that would be in the, in the chicken coop, and there'd be various types of animals in there. Very interesting to see the way the animals would protect their young. Same thing around here, you know, bears. They don't really bother you. We got bears up here. If you're not from around here, we got big old bears. And they, they're not grizzlies, so they don't, they don't really bother you. But don't go near mama when the babies are there, and don't go near the babies if mama's anywhere near. And so this is what he's talking about. Now, sometimes people will say, well, this, that's sort of you're making God like the mother. And it's a very interesting thing. I, you know, maybe the ladies will side with me for a minute here. But I notice in my Pam a real protective nature in her of our three children when they were younger that I just didn't have. I mean, she was protecting everything. And in a lot of ways, a lot more personal. I mean, she was just, she was home with them. I was doing the work thing. And, but she was just closer to them. And, and so she was sort of like, they were sort of a lot of times kind of under her wings, if you will. And, and then he says, so his truth or his faithfulness, some versions say, shall be like your shield and buckler. Now, some of the guys are like, yes, now this, this is my part. This is dad's part here. Uh, what's, a, what's a buckler? Uh, a small shield that you would wear on your forearm. Verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. So we said before that the pestilence had to do with sickness. This has to do with violence. Verse 6, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness. You can't see it. Nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. So notice the he and you. Like a parent and like a soldier, he, God, is involved in the care of his people, specifically you, if you are a follower of Jesus. If you're not, we're glad you're here. You can change that tonight. In a moment, we're going to see how quickly you can change that. Now, it's important to realize when we read the Bible that there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. We need to learn how to read it as literature. Let's say you went on the internet, or you got a newspaper, if you still remember what those were, and so you read an article that said that somebody killed four people. Well, would you go think that's a good thing to do? No. So you'd say they're just reporting the news. So when the scripture says that somebody killed four people, does that mean it's a good thing to do? No. It's just reporting what actually happened. There's other things we have to remember when we read the scriptures. We have to look at some scriptures and, and we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, is this for specific people at a specific time or is it for all of God's people? And so this is something we have to be very, very careful of. So uh, we want to be careful Bible readers in, in promises that we're claiming that don't belong to us. So if you want to say that there's supposed to be no sickness and no violence, well, if you want to throw out all of the sickness and violence, and I, listen, I know people say, well, they didn't have enough faith. Okay, well, listen. Jesus died. He had enough faith. You have to throw out the whole book of Job. Your, book, your Bible's getting a lot lighter now because there's lots of things that happen to people Hebrews says that some people who were killed, you know what it actually says about them? Their faith was so great that the world was not worthy of them. So we have to be very careful in claiming promises of God for certain people that are not necessarily meant for us. So we find some things here in this list that might be foreign to us but the principle remains the same, that God is deeply committed to be involved, being involved in the details and the difficulties of our lives. You say, can you really prove that? I can. I can. How? He became one of us. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and entered into our difficulties, entered into our troubles, entered into our pain and our sorrow, and had plenty of his own. In verse 4, we see the protection of the Lord is 
personal, like a mama bird. Also powerful, like a warrior with a shield. In other words, the Bible writer wants us to understand that the people of God should never think that our Heavenly Father is watching, is not watching us, and can't defend us. A couple examples, one from the Old New Testament, one from the Old New Testament, Jesus, Matthew 23, 37. He's outside Jerusalem. He's looking over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. They would not come under Jesus' wings. They would not take refuge in him. When he was on the cross, we can come under his arms because he was taking the punishment for the evil that we have done. He was taking the punishment for our sins. Old Testament, Genesis 15, 1. Uh, Abram had just won a battle, and what was he afraid of? He was afraid of the enemy coming back. He went up against a bunch of kings. God helped him beat him up, and he was like, God help him stay away now. It says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, he later became Abraham, in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So how do we think this through? I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that many followers of Jesus, many people with great, great faith, suffer at the hands of enemies and die of diseases. Some people say all we need to do is claim the promises of God. Claim the promise of Psalm 91. What do we need to do then? Throw safety out? Throw precaution to the wind? No, not at all. I think it means that whether we know it or not, we are often saved from these dangers. You see, only in eternity will we know how many times we were delivered from visible and invisible enemies. We will, we will never know that here. Never know that here. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Some verses say the punishment of the wicked. So here you're saying people are going to be dying all around you, but not you. Some say this means that the people of God will never die in battle. But again, many, many people of great faith have died in battle. So it can't possibly be a universal application. It must be that God is talking here, if we're going to make, try to make it somewhat universal, he's talking about eternal death, that God's enemies die while at death the true people of God will always be delivered. God's true people, who are they? He told us in verse 2, those who trust the Lord will not suffer those kinds of calamities as judgment for their sins. Now, all of this is closely tied to what we call God's providence. And that is, and when you think about it, it is pretty amazing. Uh, his miraculously ordering of events in the lives of his people. One time, many years ago, I got to dig it out somewhere. I chronicled my, all the way from, I started with myself being a pastor, and I backtracked it all the way to my father reading an article in the newspaper. <laughs> and how the steps along the way, it, it, I, I ended up going to a certain college. I, there was a housing crisis in the university. I went to Rutgers. There was a housing crisis there. Somebody came in. Uh, who was assigned to us because it was an extra person who we didn't know, who introduced me to a friend, who when I started my company, they became a, a, a customer of mine, who they hired a college intern, and I met her, and I went out on a date with her, and she brought me to church, and I became a Christian. Just all of these bizarre events that God just sort of just weaved them into my life. And God is doing that in all of our lives. 
And I think here he uses the numbers 1,000 and 10,000, which means to us not to be concerned when you feel outnumbered. That, that God can easily beat 10,000 to one odds. That there is always hope. Why? Because there is no power greater than our God. Our part in it is simply to obey him and trust him. Verse 9. Because you have made, another version says, if you make, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Another version says near your tent. So there you have it again. So I perceive this to be an invitation from the Bible writer to all of us to make his refuge and his dwelling place, who is the Lord, our own refuge and our own dwelling place. Now, if you want to do that, you simply need to just put your trust in him. Does that mean nothing bad will ever happen to you? No. If that were the case, the whole world would be Christians. The whole world would be. People would claim to be followers of Jesus for selfish reasons. And sadly, in a lot of circles, it is. A lot of people are supposedly following Jesus because they just want to be rich. When God's people, I always say this to the guys here, the hardest part for me as a pastor is to convince God's people how rich they really are. Not rich in necessarily money here on earth, but certainly in inheritance. But there are a lot of people that are chasing after earthly wealth or health, and boy, as quick as they come in the front door, they leave out the back door when they say it didn't work for them. It's terrible. So the Lord says, is the psalmist's refuge, which means that he knows that anything that happens to him, listen to this, if God is your refuge, that means that anything that happens to you, you are still under the Lord's protective care. It seems similar to what came before, but here it seems like there is a condition on God's special protection. You and I have to individually make the Lord our dwelling place. Once again, let's, let's, get, this, let's get this right. This is a lot more than just saying, I believe. Really, the word believe in, in the Bible really more has the connotation of trust. For us, believe is a head thing, but when we say we trust in the Lord, it is with every fiber of our being. It is, it is the essence of who we are. And so we have to trust him. Dwelling in him is staying close to him, even if you don't know what's going on. It's, it's, it's saying, God, I don't know what's going on, and, we're, and, and Habakkuk's going to take us there on Sunday mornings. It's coming, but he's not there yet. He's got some things he's got to sort out. That's so cool. We get to listen to him sort him out. But, but to dwell close with the Lord, to dwell with the Lord, to say he is your refuge, to say he is my God, means that you're still going to stay close to him when you don't know what's going on. In other words, you're not going to run away from home. You're not going to be like, that's it, I'm out of here, I can't take this place anymore. No, because you're committed to him because he committed himself to you by giving his son to you on the cross. To, to experience this, this special protection. Now, now it, again, it, a lot of times it's not necessarily just physical. It, it's you're actually feeling confident in the Lord in the midst of great difficulty. It means resting in God. Not just saying you are. Sometimes you hear people say, 
well, you, you just need to trust the Lord in this. And they're like, I am. That's not very convincing. That's not very convincing. No, no, it, it's, it's actually resting in him. Not saying that you do, not acting like you do, but actually trusting him in the midst of your difficulty. Verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you. Another version says orders over you. To keep you, another other version says guard, another says protect, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash uh, your foot against a stone or strike your foot against a stone. Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus, remarkable thing. For 30 years he lives in relative obscurity. We don't know how many times he was tempted by the devil, but we do know that he lived in perfect 24-7 trust to his heavenly father. He obeyed his parents. He was a carpenter. Some people think it was woodwork. Some people think it was stonework, but he was a faithful worker. He goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist, and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's done, nobody knows who he is. God knows. God knows who you are. And then, all of a sudden, it's time to hit the, hit, hit the stage of human history. I mean, front and center. Here's Jesus. So God sends him out to the wilderness. And guess who shows up? The devil. And, and so early in his ministry, Satan says to Jesus, hey, I know you got to walk everywhere. Come with me, man. I, I, you're not going to have to walk when you're with me. So he takes him up to the top of the temple and he says to him, hey, Jesus, why don't you take a jump off the top of the temple here? And you know what he did? He quoted Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Let's read it again. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You can just picture it. <laughs> Come on, Jesus, man. This is your chance. Trust your heavenly Father to rescue you. You're not going to get hurt. You're not going to get hurt at all. Jesus, this is your opportunity to claim Psalm 91 for yourself. Oh, do you know it, Jesus? Maybe, maybe you skipped that one in, in school when you were growing up. Sadly, Again, a common application of this psalm is that the Lord has promised unconditional security in every circumstance. But the Lord Jesus didn't take the bait. He knew that would be presumptuous. He knew that would be tempting God. Remember what Jesus prayed? Many of us grew up saying it all the time in church. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Satan wants Jesus to make his will, or and he wants us to make our will into God's will. You know, a lot of people do that when they tell, oh, well, God told me. Be very careful of that. Be very careful of that. So he's trying to get Jesus to do his own thing, not what God has for him. He's making promises to Jesus of an easy way to be king without going to the cross. And those temptations are going to come our way. There's always going to be what seems to be the easier way out. But they're not. See, here's the reality, loved ones, and you can take this one to the bank. No matter what happens in your life here on earth, God's will for your life will be accomplished. It will be. So keep trusting, keep walking, keep obeying him. And once again, our guaranteed security is not always in bodily safety and not always in healing. We are secure in God's love. And I can tell you, while I'm not perfect at it for sure, but one thing I have seen more and more in my life over the years, it certainly helped me to worry a lot less 
and to enjoy certain things a lot more. How? How do you do that? By, by trusting him and loving him. And, and back in verse 9, the point is that seeking the Lord is what provides the greatest security. That's how we move from verse 9, from trusting him to, to no evil, no plague, to be guarding by, guarded by angels, plural. Confidence is also in where we are guarded here. He says we are guarded in our, verse 10, our dwelling. Where's that? In our tent, in our homes, and in all your ways. Now, those are, those are promises that for God to be with you is a very, very common promise in the Bible for everyone who follows Jesus. For us not to worry, not to be anxious, not to be afraid, very, very common promise for all of us. Yet Jesus shows us right here that God's promises, or God's, more specifically, God's protections does not cancel out human responsibility to act responsibly. So he's not going to take that leap and see if the angels grab him. Does that mean that, that everything will always be okay if you're responsible? Not necessarily. But certainly responsibility can help lessen fear responsibility at the very least will remind us that we're not tempting God and we're doing our best to walk in his will. Very, very interesting. Um, <laughs> Satan's temptation was one that a lot of us, if we're not careful, can really give into in a variety of ways. Um, Basically, a lot of people don't believe in God because of suffering. Because they've bought into the lie that if there is a God, you wouldn't suffer. Or if he was a good God, you wouldn't suffer. But when Satan tempted Jesus, he left out an important, important part of verse 11 where it says in Psalm 91... In all your ways. Not Jesus in all your rebellious ways. In all your ways. Not in yours and mine rebellious ways, but in our ways. There is, there is the way that God has for us. And there is the way that we have for us. If you're watching tonight and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, or to, whenever you're watching this, I... I know a lot of times people talk to you about being a sinner, and, and you're like, I'm not really a sinner. And then you compare yourself to other people. In fact, you're in good company. Habakkuk's going to do it this Sunday. You compare yourself to other people. We, we all do it. But the essence of sin is there's the way that God has for us and there's the way that we have for us and we go our own way and that is the essence of sin. And Satan basically just says this to Jesus. Jesus, choose your way. Choose your way. God said he would do it. You're his son. He loves you. He's not going to let you fall down and stub your toe. So go ahead, take a leap. Again, God's way was the way of the cross. Not claiming some promise that was not meant for Jesus. Claiming a promise of God that's not necessarily meant for us is actually the opposite of trusting God. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't say, Lord, please protect me from this pandemic. Keep praying that and keep praying that and keep praying that. But God forbid you get it, or I get it. God forbid. But if it happens, won't you be glad if you've been armed with Psalm 91? 
won't you be glad if you say, this is what I need to focus on. I need to focus on trusting the Lord, making him my shelter, my shield, my defense, my refuge. I need to come under his wings, and I need to be responsible. I need to do what I'm supposed to do. Satan's invitation was not to realize the promises of God. Satan's invitation was to presumptive arrogance. And that's why Jesus replied to him, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan also left out conveniently verse 13. You shall tread upon, not you might, you shall. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. So, so what are two things that we refer to Satan in the Bible? A lion, strong, and a serpent, sneaky. The idea here is that the faithful don't merely survive. We will trample evil. We will win. And we will win in the next life, but you know what? I think we can win in this life too. Because here on this earth, we are tempted to sin. These days, we are tempted to be less trustful of God. We are tempted to wallow in self-pity, forgetting that God sends help. God sends angels. You see, Satan said to Jesus, jump off the temple and the angels will swoop you up. But that was not God's will for Jesus, so he didn't do it. It tells us in the scriptures that when Jesus was in God's will, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the cross, what did God do? He sent angels to strengthen Jesus. And you can bank on that, loved ones, when you and I are in God's will, he will send strength to us. He will send help. And that help is meant to strengthen us and to follow the ways of the Lord, not ourselves, not the way of ourselves, and not temptation. Well, that takes us to number three. The promise of faith, the promise of faith, the, the psalmist is no longer speaking. Now the Lord is going to speak. Verse 14, notice how many times he says, I, because he, who's he? The one who has put their trust in the Lord, because he has set his love upon me. So the person who trusts the Lord now has set their love upon God. God's love is set upon them, their love is set upon God. Therefore, I will deliver him or rescue him. I will set him on high. The idea is above the trouble because he has known my name. Now, is that physical? It can be, but it can also be when you're in a predicament and you're trusting in God, he's going to set you above the trouble. You're going to look at it and you're going to go, you know what? There's more here than meets the eye. I'm going to tell you something. Man, there is nothing cooler than when you are in trouble and you know God is with you. If you don't believe any, me, ask any pastor <laughs> who, who feels like his sermon's in trouble and the people are like listening intently. It's a wonderful feeling to know that God is with you. Because, verse 15, he shall call upon me the person who trusts in Jesus shall call upon me, and I will answer him. Now, notice, this is what we saw in Habakkuk again. It doesn't mean that God will automatically fix it. But he says, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him or rescue him and honor him. Verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And we now in the New Testament know that this salvation is found in Jesus Christ. So the Lord promises his trusting people to deliver them, to rescue them, to answer them, to be with them, to honor them, to satisfy them. What's our part? Love him. 
Love him. Stay close to him. Know his name. In other words, acknowledge his character, even when you're confused. And don't be afraid to tell him you're confused. Verse 15, he says, call upon me. What does that mean? It means pray. What is prayer? An outward expression of an inward trust, expecting God to keep his promises. Not the ones he didn't make, but the ones that he did make. Well, what's the most important promise? I think the one, it's the one that the Lord repeats twice in verse 14 and 15, where he says, I will deliver him. I will rescue the one who puts their trust in me. And yet, notice we see, no, we, we normally talk about our motivation for serving God. Notice God's motivation is in verse 14, because he has set his love upon me. That's God's motivation to be with us. And, and verse 15, because he calls upon me. This love for God is a deep and longing desire for him. It carries the idea of holding on tight to the Lord. And these promises are true for all followers of Jesus. It's actually written hundreds, maybe over a thousand years later, in the New Testament in Romans 8.28, a verse that so many Christians know. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I just want to talk, if you've been here a while, you know I've said this to you before, but it's really good to understand this if you're new to this Christian thing. There are certain things that happen that are absolutely horrible. And, and you should not go up to people who have experienced real horror and say, well, you know, God works together all things for good. Just think of it as maybe making a recipe and you have a particular ingredient that tastes horrible by itself. But you put it into that recipe, and you mix it up, and what is made tastes good. So don't be really careful. You know, the, the Scripture tells us we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. Sometimes people don't need your sermon. They just need your presence. They don't need your pontification. They just, they just need you to be there. Perhaps the most interesting thought to me is in verse 15 where he says, I will be with him in trouble. You notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I'm going to take it away. He said, I'm going to be with the man, with the woman who trusts me in trouble. The Lord doesn't always promise us escape from trouble. He promises to be with us in trouble. And when you have a few years under your belt of walking with Jesus, you will come to know and come to learn that it's often in trouble, that it's often in your deepest and darkest moments that you would never, ever want to go through again that you really find Jesus or you really sense that he found you. It's sad to think how many people who say they're Christians often let worry crowd out their worship. Often let worry rob them of, of the joy of the promises of God and then it's also sad how many well-meaning people declare grand promises that maybe were meant for other people in the Scriptures, like in Psalm 91, people who love and trust in the Lord, and they end up disappointed because they think God didn't come through for them or doesn't love them, or some joker comes along and tells them they didn't have enough faith. Truth of the matter is, bad things happen, man. They just do. I tell you what, being a pastor, 
That is the thing they can't prepare you for. Being a parent, that is not the thing they can prepare you for. Bad things, they just happen. And that's why we cling as followers of Jesus to the scripture that says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. We are, we are not saved because we're Christians from trouble. Sometimes we are, but often we're not always saved from trouble. We are often saved in trouble as Jesus comes to rescue us in his time, not our time. So, what about plagues? What about pestilences? What about pandemics? What do we do? Well, personally, I think the best answer, or maybe my favorite answer, I alluded to it earlier in the study, is found in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21. Let's set the scene. God's people were crying the blues in Egypt. God saved them. He took them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Things didn't go, it wasn't what they expected. How often is our complaining about things were not what we expected? Didn't wasn't what they expected. So they started complaining. Complaining. It became a cancer among the people. They didn't, they didn't like anything. They didn't like the conditions. They didn't like the food. They didn't like Moses. And they actually started to not like God. So let's read what happened to them. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Tough trip. Tough trip. Not the easy way they wanted to go, but it's the way God sent them. Sometimes God does not send us the easy way. Sometimes he sends us the tough way. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Another version says they became very impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And here's how they're complaining. Why have you brought us up out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. They had been eating miraculously provided manna every morning. What are they saying? We were better off before. Now, when they were in Egypt, what did they do? All they did was complain. And now, they don't like anything about what's going on. They resent what's going on. They're ungrateful. They're fearful about the future. And they are completely self-absorbed. Verse 6. <laughs> now, remember, that's why it's interesting to me that maybe it's Moses that wrote this, this psalm. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, you think? <laughs> they have a guilty conscience. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, and this is totally the grace of God. He could have been like, that's it, they're done. I've had it. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Now, I think there's an element of faith there because some people are like, I ain't doing that. Other people are like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I trust God's going to do what he said. Verse 9, so Moses made a bronze serpent, and he put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, then he looked at the bronze serpent, that when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So in this case, God uses a deadly epidemic to miraculously protect people from spiritual death. 
A crisis of any kind has a way of doing that. A crisis of any kind has an interesting way of getting us to look at what's really important in life. A crisis of any kind has a way of of getting us sometimes to even consider the next life. I think we all do that when we go to a funeral. We preached a sermon years ago in Ecclesiastes about we went to a funeral and said, don't waste going to a funeral. Like these people, the, the, the epidemic, the pandemic, if you will, for that they were going through, causes many people to turn to God. What does it cause them to do? To repent. They say, we have sinned. They confess their sins against God. And they're so desperate, their first impulse is to look for what? To look for a mediator. Someone who can actually talk to God. So they go to Moses, who they had been critical of. The scripture says in the New Testament that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And how many people do I know that are now followers of Jesus who were once completely critical of him? If that's you, raise your hand. That was me. So the Lord told them what to do. He said, make a bronze snake. Hang it up. Hold it up. Look at it. And trust what the Lord has said. Everyone had to look at it or die. But here's the beautiful thing. No one was told they couldn't look at it. No one was told that they couldn't look and live. It was for everyone. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Jesus is meeting with a a well-known Jewish scholar by the name of Nicodemus. We read, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's Jesus' favorite name for himself. That whoever believes, that would be whoever, whoever puts their trust in Jesus, in him, should never perish but have eternal life. So the gift of eternal life is for whoever believes, whoever trusts in Jesus. Who is excluded? Those who refuse to look and live. Those who refuse to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and put their trust in him. Just like in the wilderness. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so much the Son of Man himself be lifted up. That's the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So let me ask you as we close, who or what are you looking for to protect you, to heal you, to save you? Later on, Jesus would say in John 12, verse 32 and 33, and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people, and if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now, if you go to church sometimes, they say, let's lift up the name of Jesus, right? That's not what he's talking about. You say, how do you know? Because John gives us commentary, verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus was talking about his death on the cross. And all we need to do is turn to him and put our trust in him. To come under his wings. Because on the cross, he was no longer under his father's wings. As the judgment for your sin and for mine, for just doing it our way, not his way, was placed upon Jesus. And we actualize that theologian say we experience that it becomes a reality in our lives when we put our trust in him today we have a greater mediator than Moses and we have a greater promise than Psalm 91 
It is the promise of look and live. But when I think about Numbers 21 and when I think about the cross of Jesus Christ, I think how merciful God is in a crisis not to make it complicated and to immediately give people eternal life, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, who simply trust in him. It's not complicated. It's so simple. Look at the cross. Put your trust in Jesus. That doesn't mean you'll be saved from every problem in life, but you will be able to be saved from sin and death, to have a right relationship with God, to be safe in the shadow of God's love, even when you are surrounded by danger, you can be completely safe in a very dangerous world. Well, let's pray.